Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back. The playoffs are in full swing. Cody is here. We are I mean, I think we're going to I think we're going to talk about we're going to be positive today by combating all the negativity. That's what we're going to do today. How does that sound? I love that. Are you are you implying that we're never always positive? I feel like sometimes uh sometimes I get sassy. Yeah. I feel like sometimes Sometimes we start throwing haymakers. It gets fiery in here. It's a, it's, gets, it's a real dark place sometimes. I think sassiness isn't necessarily negativity. I think you can spin sassiness in a way that's like, hey, let's be sassy towards the negativity. So it's like two negatives to make a positive sort of thing. I want to stamp out the negativity. And I actually said this on another podcast a couple weeks ago. It kind of reminds me of Karl Popper's uh, Paradox of Intolerance which I'm all here for. If you're not familiar with that, look that up. That's a fairly important philosophical concept where we stamp out the negativity with what sounds like negativity, but it's not. It's not. Um, So we're going to get into this later today, something that I'm dubbing the haters bingo matrix. Uh, we'll, We'll explain what that means in a minute as we go through the show. But watching some of the recent playoff games over the weekend, One of the first things that jumped out to me after we had kind of planned this topic was Stan Van Gundy tweeting about fans complaining that teams are blowing leads, quote unquote, blowing leads, right? Um, And his his point in the tweet, I think, was one about three-point shot in the modern game. Here it is. He says, in today's NBA, with the fast pace and the volume of threes, no lead in a game is safe. We see it every night. When will we realize that it's a 48-minute game and leads not being safe is a feature instead of teams failing? And I thought this was a fascinating thing, Cody, because my problem with complaining about teams blowing leads, like Minnesota the other night in that wild game three. Did you catch that game? Oh, I caught that game. Yeah. um, That game three, didn't they not have two separate 20-something point leads that Memphis erased, and then Memphis ended up winning the game, and in the fourth quarter, Memphis had like a 21 nothing run or something. Is that, am I getting all that right? That is correct, and shockingly, not the only 21 nothing run in the playoffs so far. I just thought I'd throw yeah. that out there, too. Yeah, so that, I think that's Stan's point, which is that the with the three-point shot, you have maybe some higher degree of variability, at least in the short term. I know there's been studies done on how that kind of maybe evens out. But you can get very swingy games that are back and forth. And that aside, my thing with blowing leads has always just been, we don't, it's not symmetrical. We don't say when the team got the lead that the losing team blew the first half, right? We don't say they blew the start. This team blew the start and this team blew the end. And even if we did that to the point of what we were talking about, that is just completely negative to me. That is only looking to criticize or or this one-sided view of basketball that is people doing things wrong. Who do I blame? Who do I get out? Who, who can I tweet about, talk about, and criticize instead of just saying like, wow, a lot of guys do a lot of great things and sometimes there's strengths and weaknesses. And yes, sometimes one team or player gets the better of another. But usually, especially in the playoffs, it's because the opponent or the winning side is executing better. They have better talent. They have better fit. They have better coaching. Like these guys are out there performing at a higher level. Typically it's not some team like Minnesota getting a lead. And then I don't, I don't know. Blowing it to me would be um, 
legitimately like changing how you play in such a severe manner that you would be fum- melting down, right? You'd be fumbling the ball back to them five times in the run and airballing free throws repeatedly and forgetting to have five guys check into the game or eating a pizza and celebrating on the bench or something. By the way, Charles Barkley once ordered and ate a pizza on the bench when he was at Auburn. I've been trying to get footage of that forever, and I don't know if it exists, uh, but that's a great pizza on the bench story. But anyway, Cody, that's enough of that. Like, that's you see the point here. You see where I'm going. That would be blowing it to me, and I think we do a disservice to the sport, at least from my perspective, when we just focus on that negative angle. I like the framing of that where it's like you don't necessarily say that the other team blew – whatever the score was to give up that lead in the first place. Like, no one after the first quarter was like, wow, the Grizzlies really blew it to give up 39 points to the Timberwolves. Like, that didn't happen. And no one, like, goes, like, even micro-level, like, on a possession. Like, uh, they give up a wide-open three, and they're like, oh, my God, the Grizzlies blew another possession. Just another possession blown. And so I think that is a really fascinating framing of that. Because then you could also frame it in any sort of direction. Because no one's also being like, oh, wow, Timberwolves are really punching above their weight, dropping 39 points in the first quarter. And then when they give up the lead, being something like, oh, actually, Timberwolves might be playing closer to what they usually would be. So it's it's interesting how people, like, focus in on that 121-point segment of a game and be like, this is the definition or this is what defined the whole thing. Right, okay. So... The reason why this is on my mind, as the playoffs start, the hot take machine starts, and and what happens is, yes, there are some players, especially early, who get their flowers, who are playing well and on winning teams, but even those guys aren't immune, and we'll come back to that in a second. No one one is immune, and so this isn't a one-off thing, starting with this idea of blowing leads and, and Stan Van Gundy's tweet. It's more of a pattern that I see of... When the playoffs start, the loudest voices in the room seem to be the critics, seem to be who did what wrong. How can we play the blame game? How can we point fingers? And so this leads to what I call playing haters bingo. Okay? Haters bingo. So so haters bingo is kind of like a two-by-two matrix where a player can play well or poorly and a team can win or lose. And if you look at the first position in the matrix and you said, well, what happens when the player plays poorly and the team loses? I mean, that's the easiest one. That's low-hanging fruit, right? I told you so. This guy wasn't that good. I told you so. It's his fault. He's choking in the big moments. He can't play at the highest level. Uh, I told you so. Super easy to explain that one. That's, Super like, that's like the easiest bingo. The easiest one. That's just such low-hanging fruit. That's shooting fish in a barrel. Okay. Then you've got this thing that happens when players actually play well and the team loses. And, and it's actually sometimes hard for people even to concede that players can play well when their team loses, which is kind of like a stunning, mind-blowing thing when you say it as a full sentence. Like, if you lose the game, you had to play poorly. We know that's not true. And so when a player plays well and the team loses, what you often see is, ah, empty stats. What did I, what did I tell you about this guy? Not a winner, Right. So he's putting up the numbers. He, we'll leave aside like the impact concept of it. Just he's putting up the numbers. Sure, he had a good game, but his team lost, so he didn't do enough. And I feel like there's one, there's one key player right now that, that was dubbed a losing player for years until all of a sudden he wasn't on a losing team, and all of a sudden he's an MVP candidate. So Who's that? Is, oh, Devin Booker. Devin, but, well, Devin Booker just got injured, so now 
who knows what's going to happen there. Um, but did you have more? Because I think, I think each one of these categories has stars. And we can talk about the top players in the league, 5, 10, 15 biggest stars or whatever. I don't think anyone essentially is immune. I think everybody gets it around the playoff time. And it wasn't like this 10, 15, 20 years ago. This feels like a new thing to me where I, the first round of these playoffs, tell me if you disagree, the first round and the first week or so, however long it's been, a month, I can't keep track of time, um, has been spectacular. The games have been exciting. There's been really interesting stuff going on. It's, 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 there's a lot of competition. It's hard to figure out who's the favorite to a certain degree. And yet we're only a couple days in and, and Cody, they're coming out. The haters bingo. They got their cards ready. People are calling numbers and everybody is getting it left and right. So if you have someone in mind, um, that I think we should talk about them. Yeah, I think another key one for this this specific one, especially because they're in the heart of the MVP conversation, is Jokic, Jokic and Embiid. And it, it's one of those conversations where all of a sudden the MVP hasn't even been given out yet, and still people are trying to go back and rewrite that whole conversation because even though Jokic is having a good series, like, they're getting crushed by the Warriors, and clearly it's Jokic's fault that he's just not somebody that can perform at the playoffs. And that's the expo- explanation for that series. Yeah, somehow we've taken... 10 minutes to get here but I, I mean I think this is the the biggest one on my mind um, and it, it gets into this whole referendum on the MVP which is so strange to me because the MVP one is a regular season award and two in this case um, Denver's not a one seed Denver's a six seed so the idea of the MVP would be that without him they would be a deep lottery team um, I think from a personnel standpoint, that's relatively fair to say. They had a lot of guys injured, a lot of guys kind of signed off the street, if you will, free agent pickups to try to fill in the minutes that they have. And then, you know, when Monty Morris comes back from injury, he's like one of the key. He's like, is Monty Morris the second best offensive player on the Denver Nuggets right now? I think so. I think yeah. He's really the only other player that can create any kind of dent on, on offense. Yeah, and I think normally he would be um, one of your bench players coming in, playing reserve minutes. He he can do some nice things. He's kind of like a steady as a rock player. But obviously, in the playoffs against a championship contender, having him be your second best player is just a giant talent gap. And I would think that's what you'd expect. Um, I don't know how much we discussed it publicly, but we thought Golden State had a, a pretty huge edge in that series. And I think the fact that these takes happen without the bigger picture sometimes really, really allows them to um, sort of grow and mutate and explode in the biggest possible way. Because if I told you that, let's say the Warriors make the finals or something like that, and then you had the Warriors and that team that you got to see after a couple more rounds as a finalist or even as a champion or whatever the case may be, and then they played the Nuggets, would people would people be like, oh man, yeah, Jokic should just beat the Warriors by himself? You see, you see what I'm getting at? Yeah, hundred percent. It's 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 the team concept because again, we also have these two generational players on either sides of the spectrum, right? Because it's not just Jokic himself is the only player that's that's the best player in this series. Like Steph Curry is also literally an all time level player like maybe scaled back a little bit but he's in such a stronger ecosystem like if you could just take one or two of those Warriors players and put them on the Nuggets it swings the series completely so uh yeah everything you're saying is exactly spot on for Jokic with this analysis Jokic by the way through three games um and when this comes out I think the fourth game 
will have been finished. We're recording on Sunday. They're playing on Sunday. He's averaging 33 points per 75, plus 3% true shooting relative to the Warriors' defense. He's got his normal high creation, good passing numbers. I think, obviously, Draymond Green has done an amazing job, but that's the context, again, of going against Draymond Green and a defense that looked like an historically great defense in the first part of the season when they were all healthy. And then on the other side of the court, because um, I think even if, you know, those those out there playing haters, bingo, um, I think if they conceded that Jokic played well on offense, they would say, well, now you're seeing the defensive deficits, right? You're seeing him get barbecued. And there's a couple things there for me. I've said this over and over. I think it's always worth repeating. We should not judge players in their best situation. We should not judge players in their worst situation. We should take into account the opponent and the context. Um, Cody, how many people defend Steph Curry and the Warriors machine when they're going very well? How, How many people actually are able, again, it goes back to the time thing. I mean, if we don't see anyone in the playoffs defend Curry, Clay, Poole, Wiggins, these guys that scored 70 points in 19 minutes the other day, if we don't see anyone doing it much better, then is it fair to kind of make this mental note and keep it in stone that Jokic is going to get destroyed in the postseason? Because to me, it seems to be a combination of his teammates, the situation he's in. I still don't understand why they don't try other defensive schemes. And just the fact that the Warriors and Steph Curry and the Curry Draymond pick and roll do this to just about everybody. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady. Live only on Netflix. So I think this I'm going to I'm going to expand out the conversation to rope in a couple other teams because this is something that I was thinking about because you want to try and judge teams relative to other teams but already in the first round I still don't feel like I have a great sense of where every team is. So like the Celtics Nets series right now, it's one of those where I kind of thought the the Celtics would be doing a better job against the Nets. So in my mind I'm like, "All right, was I overrating the Celtics? Was I underrating the Nets?" But I can't tell that yet because they're just contained in their own little game system right now. They're, they're only contained in their own series. And I have no other uh, variables to include in there. Same with like Dallas and, and Utah, right? Like why is Utah struggling with this team that doesn't have Luka Doncic out? Is the, are the Mavericks just a lot better than I thought? Are the Jazz a lot worse than I thought? And so I think we'll start seeing some of this. Like let's say for instance, if like Boston makes it to the finals and Golden State makes it to the finals, like will they be able to defend them a little bit better? And then if they do defend them better or if they don't defend them pl- better – are people who have been firing off these hot takes going to go back to the first round and be like, no. okay, now that we have all of this sa- all of these sample sizes, are we going to go back and, re- and rethink the takes that we fired off four days into the playoffs? No, I think that's part of playing haters bingo, is that you, got, you have to get them off while they're hot, and there's no interest in going back and, and correcting. There's no interest in coming back. Because I actually think if you look at the veterans of the league who are possibly most immune to this, and when we set this up in the notes... I had um, LeBron James listed as someone who was most immune. Um, I had I was Kevin Durant, I thought, was going to be in there. But Kevin Durant now 
kind of qualifies for this because he hasn't played that well and the team is down 3 nothing as of recording. And the criticisms of Kevin Durant after game three have been pretty severe from the ones I've seen. Now, on one hand, um, I want to be fair about this because on one hand, I feel like a lot of people are saying something that we've been saying for years over and over again about how Again, when you're in one situation in Oklahoma City and you have no spacing, your shot diet and your shot selection is going to influence your numbers and your offensive performance in a different way than when you play next to Steph Curry. And what happened in in Golden State and getting to play with Steph Steph Curry is a unique and special thing. Um, Our friend of the show, Todd Whitehead, he put together a, a great sort of piece of research looking at was that out of synergy? I can't remember. He, he tweeted out the data. But it was players who have influenced the shot quality of their teammates the most over X number of years. It's a very large sample. It's like five, six, seven, eight years or something. And it's the usual names you'd expect at the top for playmaking. It's like James Harden, LeBron James, um, Luka Doncic, guys like that, right? Number one in the world is Steph Curry. He improves his teammate's shot quality by seven expected percentage points on their shot. And so with Durant, there's that component where I think it's actually awesome to see people go back and update and say like, oh, wait a second. Hold on. I can see a, I can see a through line here. We've talked about it on this very podcast. If you look at Durant's numbers in Oklahoma City, you look at Durant's numbers in Golden State without Curry, and you look at Durant's numbers now in this situation, they're all very similar, actually. And it's the spike that you get when you play with a Curry and a Clay Thompson and all that stuff. So that's one thing. But he's also been skewered for, what, not wanting it enough, um, disappearing, um, and specifically in Game 3, and, and I'm interested in your take, so I've, I've been talking for a while, but, but Game 3 is this last point for me. He passed a lot in game three. If you look at the breakdown I did on the first two games, he actually, I thought his adjustment was to not try to be stagnant and ISO and square up and let the defense load on him. And part of that is because if you can't get by those guys, pressing and taking shots over and over again is not a good idea. Now, I think it's fair to criticize him or at least acknowledge, hey, he can't get by them. He can't create easy shots against this defense. But his countermeasure was to pass early and not have the ball stick. And he had eight assists. Kyrie Irving had nine assists. Durant created a lot more shots to me in game three. And the offensive rating of the Nets in the first two games with him on the floor was 110. Now, as a reminder, we're at about 115 league average these days. So 110 is not good. In game three, the offensive rating with him on the court was 120. And I thought he was putting the Bruce Browns of the world in a position to succeed. And of course, in the long run, the Celtics will still kind of take that. But it's weird that he gets criticized the most in game three for not being aggressive, not wanting it, looking like he disappeared, looking like he disengaged, just because he made early quick passes. And the team's offense was actually the most successful, at least statistically. And I I didn't think there was, if anything, I thought the shot making, like Kyrie was 0 for 7 from 3. It wasn't like they had magical shot making. He was just making better decisions. It was all the other things with the Celtics offense and forcing turnovers and all that stuff um, that led to the victory, in my opinion. You said like three or four things that could be an entire episode right there. 
That that Sorry. was awesome. Like, see, go back and just re-listen to what what Ben just said. There's a lot of good nuggets in there. There's two things I want to talk about. Number one, you referenced impact metrics, especially with Kevin Durango and go, going to the Golden State Warriors. I think this is something that gets lost in the sauce when people are analyzing and using impact metrics in whatever way they're using a conversation. Impact metrics they measure how good a or how much, how impactful a player is in a given situation. Okay, so if you see like a spike with Kevin Durant's numbers in Golden State, you you ha- you can't just look at that and be like, oh, Kevin Durant significantly improved in those seasons. Like it's the situation that he's in that maximizes how good he is as an impactful player. And I feel like this came up a lot with Robert Covington a few years ago when his impact metrics were off the charts. It wasn't that Robert Covington was necessarily one of the literal best players in the league, but given the exact sort of situation he was, he was so valuable in that specific role that his impact metrics were off the chart. And you can't just like, and we're going to get to the, this idea of NBA math, hopefully at some point today, but like NBA math doesn't quite work as cleanly as that. You can't just like take one's impact and and toss them into another situation and be like, this is going to be their impact no matter what. This is their static impact no matter where you throw them. It's not just a matter of summing up the parts. Basketball has this interactive component, and that's what you're getting at, where the math is not always this easy linear calculation. There's other things that go into it. Um, so where was I in the, in the bingo matrix? Was I on well, player... I- yeah, yo, go ahead. Another point I wanted to make, I, I just realized I rambled a little bit longer on impact metrics than I thought I was going to. But the other thing is, like, you, you talk about how good the Nets offense was with Kevin Durant out there. You can't, again, with, like, the messiness of NBA math, you can't just be like, okay, well, if Kevin Durant took this many more shots and he made this many more shots. You just kind of add those on to the offensive rating, and that's what it is. No, it doesn't work that way. Like, his yep. his mere presence on the court is affecting the way that the Celtics are playing them. His mere presence on the court is affecting how the rest of the Nets are playing. His creation, I thought he made some great passes, like you pointed out. He was creating a lot for his teammates, and that all has an impact, which goes back to our conversation earlier in the season when both you and I ranked Steph Curry very highly as one of the best offensive players in the league. Like, even though his actual numbers were down in the actual concrete, here's how he was shooting, those things are down. The fact that he's still out there and doing all of the little things that other people don't do maximizes how strong an offensive player he is. So it's not just like a add the points that a player scored onto how good the team is playing. Well, you can't do that because you have to replace those possessions. You, 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 so, you, so if the possessions where he passes end, end up with great shots whether it's the little Bruce Brown floater or uh, an open three in the corner for Patty Mills or whatever they got. You know, he had, a, he had a couple of good hockey assists in that game from the early pass, and then you make an extra pass. And you wouldn't get to also have a possession where he gets his nice isolation jumper where he's open and his percentages go up. It's a trade-off. It's usually one or the other. Um, so, yeah, the, the math doesn't necessarily work like that. Um, as far as haters bingo, I was I did players play well and the team uh, loses, right? That's where we were. Yep. There's all there's also the situation where a player plays poorly and the team wins, and then what people say is, well, the star got carried by his team. It doesn't it doesn't count. All that all that stuff that applied um, earlier about needing to do more to win. In this case, it doesn't count because the reason they won is that. The team and the teammates did all the other stuff and bailed the guy out and made all these shots, but he played poorly. I have to say, I'm trying to think about the playoffs, and I can't think of a uh, a big name that this has been 
applied to during these playoffs? Is there somebody that comes to mind this season, these playoffs that match this? How old are these playoffs? Are they one week? Y- yeah. Yeah, I don't think we've had it yet no. this week. Okay. Yeah, I have not seen that card played yet. That is, that is of course, an historical card um, that gets played a lot, especially for the biggest superstars and, and when big superstars get on good teams and those teams can advance into the playoffs. But we haven't, we haven't, I don't think we have really had an example of that yet. Um, the last one, of course, is when the player plays well and the team wins. And then you say the team is stacked. It's too easy. This, this is actually the Golden State one from a couple of years ago. It's like, it doesn't count because the team is too good, which of course has a strange circularity to it because isn't the team good because the guys who are playing well make it so good? Um, again, that's another one that I think you kind of move later into the playoff rounds and you see that no one's even won a series yet. Go ahead. But I think what's really interesting about this too is this also connects to the very first square in the haters bingo, the player bad and team loses the told you so because like you could have like let's let's take the golden state and and denver series right you could take that one of two ways like the people could go out there on twitter and be like oh my god this golden state team this is exactly what we thought this is way too easy like Jokic is just way undermanned against this ridiculous squad but no like for some reason the other side weighs it out and it's like, oh, I told you so. He's not going to be able to hold off in the playoffs. So it's weird where, like, people's calculus, when they're, like, deciding what take they want to go, it's like, let's take the more negative one where I can bash the player that's having an all-time season, as opposed to just, like, let's talk about how awesome this team is and how much of an all-time player Curry is and Draymond is and some and how much of an all-time uh, series Jordan Poole is having right now. <laughs> Jordan it, Poole. Oh, my God. It, talk, talk about Jordan Poole, Ben. Talk about Jordan Poole. Okay, um, well, it's only three games, so of course this is literally as small sample theater as you can get. But in the 100 minutes he's played, Jordan Poole uh, is putting up 34 points per 75 on uh, plus 31% true shooting. <laughs> he's in the high 80s in his true He's just scorching out there. And of course, as, as we've documented on the channel, uh, creating offense as well. has had some decent passes and just kind of running around and um, shooting 59%, shooting 59% from three. So, of, of course, this is part of Denver's defense breaking, and, and Jokic is part of that. But I, I think your point is spot on to the thesis of the whole kind of episode. And, and I cannot believe it's only been one week of the postseason. It feels like a month. But you're, even though it's only been one week, we're already seeing this trend to, instead of saying, yeah, I understand the context of playing this Golden State team and they're also playing very well and they also have all this firepower. And oh, by the way, you know, we could be looking at like a seven-year, eight-year dynasty or whatever it is. The flip side is it's the negativity that's focused on. Um, we see the same thing in Utah, I think, don't you think, with especially Rudy Gobert. Uh, yeah, I, I'm going to say especially Rudy Gobert. I haven't heard too much, ne- too much negativity about Donovan Mitchell, although I think there are some people giving him a hard time. He's scored a lot in this series, but his efficiency has been way down, and I don't think he's touched the paint or collapsed the defense like he was a couple months ago. I know he like injured his hip or something in the middle of Game 4 and was holding it and rubbing a lot. I don't know if he's physically 100%, if he's worn down as the season has gone on, but I think there's I think you can look at him play and say... I've seen this guy play better in the past. I think you can look at him and say some of his decisions that he's made have not optimized the Utah offense. But 
maybe because he's a volume scorer, he gets less of the criticism. And Gobert, then, you know, then the, ha- the haters bingo is trying to find the Gobert card where it's like, Gobert apparently needs to guard all five players at all times. At any time Utah loses, like, like, like 29 of the other teams in the NBA end their season losing. They don't win the championship. But I don't know if you know this, but when the Jazz lose, it's proof that Rudy Gobert is not good. So it's weird. Rudy Gobert almost falls into the blad, blad, that was weird, player bad team loses trope, (laughs) even though right now it's like player very good team only loses 50% of the time. But still, this told you so, because like you can, this is one of those things where like there's there's a ton of the discourse is like Rudy Gobert collapses defensively in the playoffs. Look at how the Jazz been performing defensively in the playoffs the last few years, blah, blah, blah. He can't switch. And then you look at his on-off numbers for these playoffs, and you're like, oh, there you are. I don't need to deep dive this anymore because we have these these prior, uh, the prior from the previous discourse. We have the numbers proving it. Gobert is just not holding up. But, I, you know, I go and I watch these games, and I try and watch some aspects of them a lot closer than others. Ben, I don't see anything where I'm pointing the finger at Gobert defensively and being like, yep, he's the reason that they're collapsing. I even, I think I sent the, the thinking basketball folks like a clip of Whiteside being in where Josh Green just like back cuts him and Whiteside like turns and just like stares and watches him. And my first thought is like, that would never happen if Rudy Gobert was in the game right now. And I'm not trying to trash Whiteside, but I'm trying to point out the fact that Rudy Gobert... <laughs> Rudy Gobert is deterring so many shots at the rim right now. Like, every time I watch, I'm just writing down Rudy Gobert rim deterrence. Rudy Gobert rim deterrence. And I, I don't know, are you seeing something right now that would give credence to the argument that Rudy Gobert is getting played off the court or is making the Jazz worse defensively? Cody, can I do a rant? Oh, please. This is what the people want. Okay, I'm, I'm going to do a rant. Um, I think the Utah Jazz... Outside of the Los Angeles Lakers, which should be in its own special category, I believe. I think they had the worst offseason of any team in the NBA. I think you could argue they had a worse offseason than the Lakers in a way. Because Here's why. Here's why. Utah, didn't they have the best record in the NBA last year? I think so. You, you, are, you are not looking to make the second round if you're the Utah Jazz. You're not looking to be happy fielding a 52-win team and putting people in the stands. You you want to take the step to get over the hump to get to the NBA Finals. Last year, the whole league was a battlefield. People were dropping like flies. They were so close to getting to the conference finals and then potentially having a situation where they could make it through to the finals and then even potentially winning in the finals. I mean, so much going on. You come back this season. Did you address any of your need? Did you address perimeter defense? Did you address lineup versatility? It's like, I think the idea of at least getting Rudy Gay was the idea that they could have a five-man small ball lineup. But that missed really badly. That, that, was a, that, was a, that was a huge swing and a miss, right? So I think for the teams that were contending, for the teams that were trying to take a step forward, they had the worst offseason. Okay, let me end my rant there and get back to Gobert. Because I think that connects to Gobert in the sense that He's actually had, and Utah's actually had, good playoff defenses in the past, but they've transformed from a defensive-minded team to an offensive-minded team. And now he's like the only... Mike Conley's uh, getting up there in years, let's put it that way. He's long in the tooth. He can't move his feet very well in the perimeter. Um, Donovan Mitchell has defensive problems. I think Mitchell is the best defender of the three of these guys in this series. I did go back and deep dive the tape from the last couple of games. 
Jordan Clarkson, when he's out there, the Jazz have this thing where when there's a, a small, small pick and roll, they hedge. And the Mavericks are just re-screening. They're, so the, so the one guy hedges out for a little bit, then he tries to recover. And, and once they recover, the Mavericks immediately re-screen. And like Clarkson and Connolly are like running into each other like the Three Stooges. They have no idea what to do on this re-screen. Now in game four, the defense was way tighter for Utah just on these basic principles of like, what are we going to do when there's a small, small pick and roll? Or who rotates to the corner? Um, their rotations were really problematic in, in game three, and they were much better in game four. All of this gets blamed on Gobert. Uh, what I, I'm really struggling to think of what other teams or what other players are asked to fix this many problems on either side of the basketball, right? Like if we had an offensive superstar and he played with four stiffs that could not shoot or could not dribble or could not create, would we be go would we be talking like this about that player and say, you see in the playoffs, this is just proof. You can't you, you just you just can't win with Michael Jordan in the playoffs, you know. I just he just takes all these shots and you can't win. That's a that's a joke um because that's what they used to say in the late 80s he shot too much. But I think you get the point. I'll I'll end my I'll end my rant now. Um it feels weird to me that Gobert gets the blame because when I look at the film he has played very well. I think the only thing that the maps have kind of exposed a little bit, and this is natural, he play a rim protector, is he's not as quick to recover or close out on certain shots to the corner. But when he's in the game, he's taking away the paint, and the Mavs are having to drain three after three after three. Yeah, and going back to their to their offseason, what they actually did beyond Rudy Gay to to address their defense those are like oh let's actually get rudy gobert light and sign hassan whiteside who's fine he's a great backup big but he does the exact same like that literally doesn't address the issues that you're having on the perimeter and then what you were saying about donovan mitchell you said that he's probably the best uh defender of the three which i think might blow some people's minds because mike conley has this such a reputation of being such a strong defensive guard and that was definitely true but it's 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 just not there right now it's just not right there but i think still I don't think Donovan Mitchell's he might be struggling to be a neutral level defender right now. In this I, I, I don't I don't think it's neutral. No. Yeah, I think I think it's below neutral. Yeah, and that's yeah. my point. And see, he's the best and he's still slightly negative right now. And I I was I was listening to uh Dunk Don's MVP discussion and their all NBA awards and whatever else, and Nate Duncan postulated he's like are we like? Why is it that people say Rudy Gobert's having has dropped off a little bit on defense? And when I heard that I'm like, yes, I I've been thinking this and I've been quiet on this because I've heard so many people say it. And every time I watch him, like, are, are we sure that Rudy Gobert has dropped off? Like, may, maybe mobility-wise a couple of ways, but he is such a master in the paint that it blows my mind. And I can't I can't talk about Rudy Gobert anymore. I cannot talk about Rudy <laughs> Gobert anymore. And I think I said that before on the show. But it, Ben, oh my God, I'm getting worked up. It blows my mind. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. It's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. 
You got this. Adidas. Let's um let's jump over to someone who I don't know if I've heard him criticized. And I mean, I think in a way that's a good thing um, because he's not subject to some of these sort of ridiculous tropes that we're discussing here. He's not, he doesn't have a big spot on the bingo um, haters card yet, but you brought it up against the Miami Heat, Trey Young, 2-1 series right now as we record, but Cody, his numbers are way down in this series, are they not? Oh, they're putrid. <laughs> what, why, don't you, why don't you tell the folks what, what those numbers are? Can, can I do a player A, player B situation like you like to do? I know, I know you love this game. Yeah, that's my, that's my, come on, that's our favorite game. Okay. Of course. I think you're, gonna, you're all going to figure out who player A is pretty quickly here. Uh, there, there's no spoiler there. So player A, player A in the playoffs right now. Again, small sample size. Calm down, everyone. It's okay. I understand how that works. But so far, player A, 19 points per 75, 51% true shooting, 6.4 assists per 75, plus 2.9 on, plus 3.4 on off, negative 5.4 um, basketball reference BPM. Player B, 30.1 points per 75, 51.6% true shooting, 6 assists per 75, negative 1.3 on, plus 0.1 on off, plus 4.7 BPM. Who do you think sounds like they're, is having a better offseason right now? Well, I mean, it's it's got to be player B by by a landslide, right? Yeah, it's got to be. Player A is Trey Young. Player B is Donovan Mitchell. And by the way that people are talking about it, especially after the the, the go ahead floater that Trey had and a couple of those huge pull up threes that he had in game was that game three? I don't even know at this point. Um, you would have thought that Trey Young was averaging like forty on plus sixty five right now, and that's just not the case. Uh, Mitchell, by the way, is thirty second. In my box plus minus model um, after this first week, and Young is 109th. Uh, Mitchell, one more thing to note on Mitchell. It's really interesting is given everything we said about his play, he's only shooting 24% from three. That that could just be variability. I mean, that three-point shot starts to fall, and maybe he starts to, to look really good again. Whereas Trey, I have not watched much of that series yet. I know um, I've seen some of how Miami is covering him and the bodies they get to throw at him. But Trey, he's, he's only shooting 17% from three. But it's, I think, taking away the creation, the passing, using size on him, the problem with uh, how do you switch hunt if Bam Adebayo... Did Bam Adebayo win our most switchable defender in the, in the Finkies? When we did the defensive, by the way, um, Rob Antle has proposed that we call the defensive basketball, the defensive awards from thinking basketball, the thinkies. So I think <laughs> from, from here on out, I will reference them as the thinkies. Did he win that? Did was Bam most switchable defender? I'm trying to pull it up right now. I think he was. So that's been a problem with the series. Um, and yeah, young 109th out of 114 players in the early returns on my playoff box plus minus, which is a little more sensitive to sample size and some of the other numbers. So uh, again, as I said, I think it's probably a good thing that I don't see him skewered, uh, but it's one of those things where the, the things that you choose to focus on the pro it goes back to what Stan's tweet was about, right? Cody. It's like, why are we only focusing on the idea that this one team 
blew this lead. We didn't talk about how the other team blew it at the beginning. And maybe more importantly, we didn't talk about why, why don't we say this other team had a great comeback or whatever it is. It's this very kind of negative one-sided approach to the playoffs. And look, there's some great X's and O's we can get into and all that. But these are the things that I'm noticing that it's even in such a small sample, sometimes difficult to kind of push the discourse in a positive direction. And as we've talked about today, maybe push the discourse in an accurate direction when it's like, well, you're, you're honing in on one play or one quarter or one stat that you're focusing on. But if you look at like Durant's game three, you could argue was his best game in the series. And it seems to be the one he's most criticized for. And I think that's probably from box score hunting where he had a lot of free throws, a lot of free throws that he picked up um, in the two games in Boston because the Nets were in the penalty and other guys were getting fouls. And then Durant gets a couple loose ball fouls, backcourt fouls, off ball fouls, and he gets free throws. He had a a couple free throws at the end of um, game two. And all of a sudden you look down and you're like, oh, well, he he must have played a pretty good game because he scored 25. I did see that in the comments. Um, Not much, but some of the comments on the video breaking down that game on Thinking Basketball YouTube, which was like, Durant struggled. He averaged like 26 points a game in the first two games. And like, yeah, well, you know, 40 something percent true shooting is not good. Yeah, and and going back, yes, Bam did win our most habitual defenders, uh, just narrowly beating out Draymond Green. But on Durant, too, I think with the free throw thing, like you were saying, earlier on uh, in this series, they did get in the penalty. And I feel like there were a lot of, like, 70 feet from the basket fouls that ended up sending Durant to the rim. Like, it's not like he's he's attacking the rim with reckless abandon. I think it was during this most recent game. I think I texted you, like, in the third quarter, he drove in and he had this, uh, he attempted kind of a tough tough layup attempt and missed it and I was like was that his first shot attempt at the rim this game and I think you responded and you were like what is that like his fourth one this series yeah and so the the free throws doesn't even have to do with like he was less aggressive that game it just happened to be that they were in the the penalty for much longer in the game yeah Durant um had taken two shots at the rim in the first two games he was 0 for 2 and yesterday Cody, you texted me when he made that shot. He is now one for four at the rim in this series. And okay, so obviously that is a lot to do, a a huge amount to do with the Celtics defense. It has some to do with Durant's inability to, uh, or maybe I should say it's the combination of the Celtics defense and Durant's inability to get by some of these guys or figure out how to create openings when they send a second defender or when there's traffic in the paint. But again, going back to maybe the the thrust of this conversation, um, this has been something that we've talked about before. This has been something that's been brewing for years. Durant has been getting to the rim less, and especially post-Achilles, and is one of the reasons why last season... I did not, it felt like he had this wave of support last season where everyone's like, Kevin Durant is unstoppable. He's the best player ever. And he had those two transcendent games against the Bucks, but the rest of that series wasn't that great in terms of his shooting and scoring numbers. And a lot of that was because it was yet another series as he gets older where he's taken like, you know, you, take, you can't take like 16 mid-range shots a game and just always expect you're going to make them. We actually saw this happen with Kyrie Irving in this series. I think Kyrie Irving's big game one gave the Nets a great chance to steal home court, to, to snatch serve, to use a tennis metaphor, right? Uh, they lost the game at the buzzer. But the reason is that was 
plus EV shot variance. That was shooting higher than the expected value of those shots, and you can't rely on it from game to game when those shots are double-team fadeaways, step-back threes, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that variability is what makes the playoffs just so impossible for most people, for a lot of people, for almost everyone, to have like clear and concise and accurate analysis of what's going on. I mean, we can look at any segment of the regular season, of any 82 games, like say say the, the Jawless Grizzlies, for instance, and you did that video where you broke it down and talked about their shooting luck and how that propelled how they were playing so well, and that was across, what, like 14 games earlier on in the season? And here, it's even a smaller sample size. Like, at the longest possible, a series will have seven games. Some of them might have four, five, six. Anything can happen. All right? And so you get a couple of teams, you get a couple of players that are outperforming themselves by a point or two uh, per 100 possessions. That swings everything so much. Um, you mentioned Jaw. I think Jaw and Devin Booker are both... I mean, what's going to happen? What's going to happen if the Suns win this series in five games with Devin Booker out. Uh, is that, are we going to start to see the sort of haters bingo play the, yeah, well, his team is stacked or he got carried or something like that. Booker, Booker actually got injured in a game where he was going ballistic. He had 31 points in the first half and was just reining in everything. And to your point, with all the small sample stuff and the quick reactions from everyone kind of, driving some of the conversation, what, what, what are they going to say if the Suns advance? I fully expect the Suns to advance, by the way. But then when you get to the next round, things are going to get a little trickier. Um, assuming they play a team like Dallas, you, of course, want Devin Booker, just like if you're Dallas. You, Luka, what about Luka? You know, that's another guy who is vulnerable with the Mavericks going up 2-1 without him. And then the first game back, they lose. And it's like, okay, is it is it too much Luka ball? Is it empty stats? And to me, the Suns are very good without Luka. There's redundancy. We've talked about it a ton. It has to do with the basketball math not adding up, as you said earlier. On-ball guys limit each other. That's just the way it is. But they have another really good on-ball option in Jalen Brunson. They have another ball handler out there at all times now in Spencer Dinwiddie. So in a series like this, if those guys play well, you don't just get to add good Luca on top of that. Luca replaces that. So Brunson had that transcendent 41-point game too. He had a number of big shots in game three. Uh, they can run, a, like I said, attacking a lot of small, small pick and rolls where they're getting the Jazz defense discombobulated. And Luca comes back, and now Luca does that, so you don't get the same value from Brunson. So it is, to me, a valid... Uh, observation or criticism of what happens when you try to build on top of these players. But it's also something that it's like, do the Jazz want Luka Doncic when they're going up against the Phoenix Suns? Yeah, the Jazz want, I mean, the uh, the Mavs want Luka Doncic. These four-letter teams are killing me today. <laughs> that's that's it. I'm, no more talking from this guy. You know, so I'm glad you brought it back to this NBA math thing, because I think Luka with the Mavericks is really fascinating, because I, I actually think back to somebody like Akeem Olajuwon in the 90s, where... In a sense, like, I think the term that you coined is inelastic offense, right? Where Olajuwon 
really great at taking a bunch of tough shots, but he's not necessarily making life easier for himself against worse teams. But as defenses get better and better, he's still taking and making those really tough shots. So that's the kind of guy you want on your team when you're facing a really good defense, because when the chips are down, you can go to him and you can reliably know that some of these inefficient, difficult shots are going to start going in. And I think Luka's kind of the same way, where the way that Brunson and Dinwiddie, like the, the Jazz are really not built to guard like really quick guards. And Jalen Brunson is such like a, a herky-jerky sort of dribbler. Like it rhymes with a lot of like Manny Ginobili, right? Where it's just like a lot of really quick movements and no one on the perimeter for the Jazz has shown that they can do that. Whereas Luka, Luka can sl- slows down a lot more in offense. You can throw somebody like Bogdanovich on him and all of a sudden that's a guy that can match him strength for strength because that's another strong dude out there. And so I, that that's one of those that when they start facing, or if, I should say, if they start facing better and better defenses, they're going to need Luka because he brings that inelastic ability against uh, better defenses. Yeah, I agree completely. And I, this is also reminding me uh, back to Durant, where you're looking at the Celtics and the Nets, and I think, I think I'm a little uh, more confident in what I'm seeing from the first round as, as actual signals, legitimate signals from a lot of these teams. But I think the real sort of meat of your point is that what does it look like when a particular matchup, like in a particular style of defense, you know, style makes the fight kind of things. What happens when they change? That's still harder to see. So the Celtics in the second round, they could potentially play the Bucks which is a totally different kind of matchup for them, right? A lot of size across the board, big wings, Drew Holiday as a defender. And then with that Celtics defense, they're going to have to defend Giannis in a different way than they defend Durant. They're going to have to defend the Bucks offense and all those middle handoff actions and knock on wood if Chris Middleton's in the game, like we talked about this earlier in the season. So what does that actually look like? I think it's reasonable to say, hey, this is a great defense. The Celtics defense is looking incredible right now. So there's some transferability of that talent, but the style makes the fight. So with Durant, last year against the Bucs, he was was playing the P.J. Tucker defense, right? The Bucs defense, in a sense, was we want to extend Tucker way out on you hard, and we're going to let you do a lot of ISO scoring against P.J. Tucker. It's a weird Texas thing they got going on there with the you know Texas Texas alums just playing one-on-one but that is a completely different series to evaluate when you look at the way a player performs versus this Celtics playoffs and then similarly to your point going forward what does Golden State's offense look like against um, Memphis or Minnesota's defense is on the other side well Minnesota's defense they also kind of play a hedge and have Carl Anthony Towns so I think we could expect this similar kind of struggles, although at least Minnesota, you know, I think Vanderbilt um, is a, is a better defender than anyone the Nuggets have right now. Memphis would be a completely different kind of matchup. Um, and in the regular season and even in last season's uh, play in game, Memphis's athleticism, speed, versatility, they gave Golden State a little bit of a harder time. So this is to me um, the challenge of, of the playoffs going forward is like, how, how do the styles match up? Since I think there are a lot of different styles right now. You have the Buck size. You have 76ers with um, MB, just Embiid ball and, and Harden and Tyrese Maxey attacking closeouts. Uh, you have the Heat with sort of, I mean, just Heat basketball, like a lot of movement on offense, a lot of dynamicism on defense. Uh, the Warriors in the West, the, Sun, the Suns are a machine. We've talked about them. It, it's great. 
Yeah, and this this goes into the the cliche that people say. It's like, oh, I don't like the NBA because all offenses look the same. Like that that couldn't be further from the truth. This is what we're talking about illustrates all that. And a final point I want to make in terms of like the NBA math not working out has to do with Middleton missing uh, missing from the Bucks. Now I, I don't have the game up right now. the The Bucks Bulls game is on at the moment. I have no idea how it's going, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna push forward and talk about any hypothetical future matchups the Bucks might have because I I, I don't want to get involved with karma or anything like that. But to me it seemed like the game that Middleton missed and their offense was firing it was almost like a simplifying of what they needed to do like you need Chris Middleton out there again when you're facing a lot stronger defenses because he's one of the best tough shot makers in the league but against this Bulls team you don't necessarily need that you just need to put them in rotation make sure Alex Caruso is nowhere near the ball and then just swing it around and have Giannis and Drew Holiday surrounded by guys that can just spray from three and then everything else kind of works itself out. Middleton, you don't necessarily need that sort of like slow down, methodical, get to the mid-range and pull up and work your magic, but you will need that if you start facing, like we saw in the finals last year, against someone like the Phoenix Suns. So Cody, I want to leave the audience with a question for those of you out there listening, cars, phones, computers, wherever you you consume podcasts these days. Um, Are there any stars in the game these days I'll, I'll open it up to like the last decade who are bulletproof from the criticisms of haters bingo. Uh, it doesn't matter if your team plays good. If you're, excuse me, it doesn't matter if you, you play well or if you play poorly. And it doesn't matter if your team wins or loses. Usually there's someone out there ready to pounce and attack. Are there any stars who are bulletproof? Let us know. Um, We'll leave it with that. If you want to support this show, head on over to patreon.com slash thinking basketball. We have a ton of extra content, extra videos, articles, uh, community, weekly Q&A, a ton more. Um, thanks, as always, for listening all the way to the end of this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope you're enjoying the playoffs. And uh, we will talk very soon. Of course, wherever you're listening, hope you're having a great day.